0: The notion of freeing ourselves from encumbrances of what's often referred to as the left brain. The part of the person that seeks to define, to categorize, to limit, to judge, to separate to create an independent identity. as opposed to the part of the person which is the gracious part of the person sometimes referred to as the right side of the brain doesn't lend itself to limitations language is perhaps inadequate to express the unity of the experience when one is able to escape from the limitations which the cognitive realm introduces into a person's connection to the reality of the moment. And we listened carefully to the words of Dr. Jill Bolte-Taylor who in the description of her stroke described as her left brain closed down this state of euphoria where she stopped perceiving the end points of her being but became unified with the world in its essence and you can see how that transformed her for the rest of her life opening her up to what she didn't possibly know existed beforehand so before we fetch your question young man let's try to think about what kind of consequences That's, that's that, that experience can maybe act as a little bit of a reference point for us as we explore the spiritual world as given over by the Derech Hashem a bit further. But just to deal briefly before going to the body of the text of the Ramchal with a description of a kind of spiritual event that I'm going to read from a particular book and then you'll see how you relate to it. Because at the end of your shir, someone did ask me after hearing this description of this euphoric state is that really what you know, is that that positive or negative? Maybe that's something that isn't really a preferable state of being because in that state of being you can't actually make rational decisions your whole rational mind essentially closes down you can't process stuff so maybe that's a kind of state that should be avoided not embraced Like like It's almost like, in other words, I think many, many, many people who've had that kind of drug-induced, nirvanic experience Related very strongly to what she said And I'm not looking at anyone in particular But it, well, basically, well, what certain drugs do is, they actually do that. They close down, I suppose, they close down the left hemisphere, so what's left is a right. Drugs like MDMA referred to as Mandy in England and Molly in America. Which, because I, I, I don't know, I haven't done enough r- research, but one of the side effects is definitely the lesions in the brain. So, and that it affects memory loss and all stuff like that so definitely impairs your cognitive abilities if you take it long term strongly not advised um, let's see if there's an alternative within the spiritual realm or perhaps not let's read let's, let's read let's read from this book that I've got in front of me let's see what it says yeah, got a book it says this book a book Vekach hayu chassidim and this was the way of the, the, the pious men of old, Shehoyim izboidim, they would put themselves into a state of isolation, bodut" can sometimes be referred to as a form of meditation whereby a person, I don't necessarily think it means only physical loneliness, it could mean a person surrounded by people, but he has an internal sense of complete independence he loses his connection to the concrete environment around him mispoidinim, he's a great man highest sages chasidim ha-yoshonim u and they would, now the word kavana can be translated as intent but it means one dimensional thought focus and I use the expression one-dimensional in a positive non-negative fashion in other words that the thought focus was so complete that there was no distraction it was complete and total global entire holistic being kind of experience in their tefillah which we can't translate as prayer but at this point in time, it sounds like it's definitely more on the meditative side of things Until what stage? At what stage? When did they re- reach the pinnacle of this process? Ad shehayu until... magim until they reached the Ispashtus HaGashmius and the Ispashtus HaGashmius means the gashmus is the physicality Lit Pashet means to cast off to take off. It's the way you describe skin, is this, the process of skinning an animal is called Hefshet. It means that there is an external surface surrounding a covering and you peel it off. Until they reached a level whereby they peeled off physicality completely. So this is a form of what we describe as almost it appears to be that the soul leaves the body. In other words, the expansiveness of spirit, where you feel as large as the world, as if there's no barriers between you and the things around you. His spashtus agashmius. Gashmius has what's called Geder ugvul. It's a limit. How big is the table? You can measure it. The world of the spirit has no boundaries, everything flows into anything. It's this vast sea of energy. The spashtus agashmius and to the powerful triumph of the spiritual <coughs> spirituality in other words, basically it seems to be that this this book is describing some type of statement, state where the, the what we describe perhaps in our vernacular the left brain takes a way back seat, <laughs> stops making its, its discussion, stops, stops giving its opinions and the right brain totally takes over until the normal restrictions and inhibitions and limitations imposed by the cognitive world are completely left behind and the person has the power to allow his spirit to soar. I'd show you my Geen, the Midas and Nouveau that through this process they would often approximate the level of prophecy whereby the spiritual world would be so blown wide open to them they'd be able to, at that point in time, so when you transcend space and time so you can see things in the future because there's, there's no future past and present, it's all just happening whatever that means when I get there I may be able to comment or I won't because I'll have to then bring it down back into language and lose it all so I wonder what mystical book I've been reading from and as I said that, I opened up the book and said IT'S THE SHUKONARUCH the code of Jewish law with the Mishnah Burah as a commentator. And what's he doing? He's describing your daily prayers. Hmm. He's describing what we do when we stand up to Daven Shmone And then you look at me and I look at you and you say What? What? And um, we say, okay, well, obviously there's something that we're missing. So I find that interesting there's obviously a lot more that needs to be discussed exactly what is that state how does one get that state clearly we've dove into yesterday, those seated in the room do it on a looking around, at least a semi-regular basis and there we go 100% <laughs> <laughs> so So we've done it, somehow, if I I read this description of what you did this morning in Shachrist Yes, if if you read this description of this morning Shachrist fila and then you describe your own Shachrist fila, so I'll, I'll describe mine Okay, I wouldn't describe it as the relinquishing of the spiritual, the physical self and this transcendent moment of going into the spiritual galaxies I would say, if I would be commenting, if I would take a bird's eye view of myself he walked three steps forward, minuscule steps, towards the bench in front of him and began with a low bow. As he bowed down low, he thought to himself, oh gosh, I've got a crick in my back. Let's make this coming up slow so I can do a bit of a stretch at the same time. As he was doing this, he was simultaneously by rote reciting a series of Hebrew words which kept his mouth busy, which allowed his mind to wander to think about what breakfast would be and to go into a random associated thoughts about after breakfast, it became the day and then then floated back to some memories of the past and the next time he actually had a cognizance of where he was is when he got to the mod in prayer and had to brow down again the movement kind of located him back into where he was, he managed to focus for the following three seconds and finally at the end of the Shemona es- Esra, as he took his three steps back he realized that the chances were that he did say all the words Somehow, that description of what happened to me this morning, and the Shulchan's arch description of what should have happened to me this morning, seem slightly varied. So that could be a problem. So that's a really important thing to explore. But before we explore it in more detail, and refer back to our standard textbook, which has Become the Der Hashem, which you are so I'm going, to, I'm going to just field a few few insightful comments from some of the, the British members of the chair. We'll begin with Jonathan Banner.
1: Um, so in regards to what the Shulchan says, oh yes, and uh, I think it's getting from a sechel barchu, the fourth perk. Absolutely, that good source. So we're saying that these chasidim or rishonim who were an exalted level used to do used to wait one hour and then achieve their goal in an hour. So therefore, we so how that's first of all. Second of all, it doesn't last. After three hours, when it is concluded, they bring it down, and then they go back to normal day. So, how realistic is what we're talking about? and how do we so make
0: so it okay? So, what you've done, what you've done, what you've done, is you've done something which is which is quite frankly conniving. What you did <laughs> is by using your knowledge of the Gemara brachas, you then distorted the words of Shulchan Aruch and made them say something which would make your life more convenient. <laughs> I was saying, how, how is it possible? So the, the Gemayim Baruchas is a Mishnah in the beginning of the 4th four, Parikh which describes the Chassidim and Rishonim. In that Mishnah it says Ha They used to wait an hour before they davened. They used to daven for an hour, the Shemone Esret used to take them an hour to say those for them, 18 or 19 Baruchas. And then you to take them an hour to land. Which is, means that they were davening since they davened 3 times a day, 9 hours a day. To which the Gemara asks in astonishment, Well, when did they ever learn and get along with their Parnosa? I mean, says the Gemara, a man's got to make a living. And, perhaps more importantly, a man's got to learn Torah. When did they do that? So the Gemara says, Since they were Hasidim, their Parnosa was multiplied and their learning was guarded. Whatever the Gemara means, that's the Gemara. Now we're we arriving at the Rabbi Yosef Karo's. Shulchan Aruch. he doesn't say a word about the pause before and afterwards does he? Seems to be
1: just about the hour.
0: he's discussing the state that a person needs to reach and since it's brought down in the Shulchan Aruch which is the code of Jewish law meant to be read and followed by your average Jew in the street so for some reason he felt this point was relevant to know for your average Jew in the street. And if you're saying it was only the permission, the territory of a select spiritual few, which may be true or not, we have to ask ourselves the question is, why would it appear in a Jewish halachic code? It may, appear, it may appear in a work on the mystics, but in this context, it seems out of context, unless we are to say this description has relevance for our kind of davening and i think that's a point you want to explore thank you for making the comparison jonathan jonathan banai let's go to another british member this year this time it's another guy with a jewish jewish kind of name which has an english translation jacob <laughs> jacob petito what would you like to say
1: um so it seems like press should be more a kind of right-sided brain way of Action like she explained everything, explained everything as in her experience with the right side. Of the right side, she was completely immersed in, she didn't know the boundaries, between what was what was her and what wasn't. It's all very right side stuff. And it seems like prayer you're, you're speaking, you're saying words, which is left brilliant.
0: Left. Brilliant. In other words, how can the way the way Jill Bolte Taylor described it <laughs> was that her entire cognitive side closed down, she couldn't read, she couldn't speak. And in a world where the world there's no language, then there was this transcendent experience. But the irony is, seemingly, our very demand to have the state precludes language, yet thriller requires it.
1: Um,
0: and just before just before we fully qualify the answers question, I'm just gonna fetch a question from a person from the kind of I would say um eastern, mid-eastern, middle of America. Cincinnati, somewhere in there. Somewhere, somewhere in there, Cincinnati. The only place that if you stay at a traffic light and you don't notice the light has changed, there will be no one in the rows of cars behind you that will hoot, honk, because they are so laid back. They'll just wait another light. they will go the next light. <laughs> it makes people in Australia look like they are tense. Zach?
1: Um, I'd say even more than that, more than just the language aspect in Darwin there is supposed to be a certain focus, you are supposed to be focusing on certain things there are certain ideas or concepts you need to um, be focused on and in that state you're not able to focus it's 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 kind of just going with the breeze
0: Seemingly, seemingly that the state, state that's described by Shulchan Ar- or as we heard from yesterday would not would not, wouldn't need this uh, conscious, focused effort. It would seem like it's, it's a much more natural state that when you when you close down a particular part of yourself, you can just fly. Now we're going to get a question from the southern hemisphere, one Josh Benjamin, hailing from Johannesburg. Um uh, boost in Cape Town, but still okay. First
1: thing I think is just very interesting that like this whole right brain, left brain split is also split in the world in terms of like... The Western focus on East-West. yeah, and the, and the and the Eastern like focus on all these like um, transcendental sort of like states that's infused in their spirituality, like right. But it, so it's very interesting. It's like seems to not be coincidental at all.
0: Steve Jobs' biography, as you well know. Yeah. Steve Jobs? Do you know? Do you know who Steve Jobs no. is? Uh, do You know Steve Jobs. He's is?
1: not Jewish. <laughs>
0: that's an excellent observation <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing how do you know his name wasn't originally Jobowitz aha Shloimi Jobovitz. do you know that as a fact it wasn't Chas <laughs> for <laughs> you don't know that So Steve Jobs, he writes in his biography That what he did was he spent a lot of time traveling the east because one of his goals was to synergize these two different cultural preferences to different sides of the brain good point moving on
1: so uh, uh, I would say that, so so yeah, from that like we see that it's not about like uh, ignoring one another, it's about unifying the two opposites.
0: Uh, Interesting point. In other words, until now we've looked at them as exclusive uh, of one another. Perhaps there's a point that we can fuse them in some type of synergy of spiritual and cognitive explosion. Nice. Next point. Uh,
1: Uh, Do you like the
0: talk show, huh? I like this talk show stance, it's quite good. Go on Josh.
1: The second thing is, uh, it's it's like an amazing amazing study I told you about once actually, uh, where they put Buddhist monks through MRI machines when they were meditating on oneness, and they found that like two parts of the brain that usually act like a seesaw, like in terms of the, it's either they found like usually in normal people's brains the part that controls internal processes is down when the part that controls external processes is up and vice versa. So like, if you think about it, if when you're playing soccer or doing a puzzle, you can't really think about, you can't really meditate fully because because of the way the brain works. For example, chess,
0: chess, chess boxing. Have you ever watched chess boxing? Think it's exactly. how, how long is it? It's like you, you play three moves and then you have a round in the boxing room? <laughs> I'm, I'm serious, <laughs> chess boxing. It's an amazing game. It's an amazing game. It's chess boxing. Like you try to beat your opponent both cognitively and physically. It's complicated, but it must, it must be quite disorientating. Like imagine, imagine like being just being like knocked down to the floor and then like having to move your king and like how you feel about that and like what your mind's <coughs> thinking. Go on.
1: So, like, so when they what they find in their brains when they're meditating on oneness is that like their brains break the rules of sciences they taught. They knew it, and, like both ends of the seesaw, so to speak, are up. Mm. So it's not like it's it's so it suggests that like yeah. there,
0: another proof to perhaps a unified form of prayer where you can synergize the two sides of one's experience interesting point is there anyone else from any other continent which would like to make a point new york brooklyn gano I wanted
1: to say so uh, on a practical level if he's bringing all this deep spiritual aspect of prayer and you know he's telling this to the average person how do you bring that down like you know it seems uh. like he's speaking to ch- like Middle Eastern, you know? Right,
0: absolutely. In other words, it seems like he's, he's describing some type of meditation course. And here we are in, like, you know, a very Lithuanian-style yeshiva where you would think they won't speak about that stuff over there, will they? They just come the... So we have, to, uh, we have to see. We should maybe speak about the stuff. If it's written in the Shulchan Aruch, maybe it's not only worth speaking about, but crucial to speak about. Mark Jacob, would you like to say something? No. Okay, good. So I think we've, we've kind of covered all the questions, and there may be time to go on to the, to, the next, to the next point, which is to slowly but surely try to negotiate our way further in the suya. But as we all know, as we all know, good things don't come fast. So if at this point in time anyone had this like, wild expectation that I'd pull out from my pocket some of solution to all things in perfect prayer and present it to you and then you'd be able to swallow it up and Mincha would be a different experience, well, afraid to say, you're wrong. What we will do, though, is we'll start to go to the bare basics of what the creation is all about, as presented to us by the Ramchal, and see how our knowledge of how the created world came into being can perhaps start to develop some kind of bedrock from which we can grow the solidity of being that will assist us in making these spiritual steps, albeit incrementally. Therefore, I charge you. To open up your books In my volume, it's page 18 Others, page 37 And perhaps others Even a different kind of page Says the Ramchal Hinei And behold And behold The purpose of creation was The Ramchal begins With a very categorical, fundamental, and powerful statement. And we're going to go through a few paragraphs in order to understand the nature of the sequential, (coughs) um, logical sequence of how this system of the perfect creation works in terms of the reality that we find ourselves in today where the world does not appear to be paradise. On the contrary... What often confronts us when we look at the world, is an enormous amount of pain, suffering, injustice, cruelty, and the like. So when the, Ra- when the Ramchal begins by saying, The purpose of creation was, To give to give to do good, of his good, his of Hashem's good, l-zul-as-ay. the purpose of creation was for Hashem, to take his good and bestow it upon another.
1: It's an interesting statement because um, like the, the, the main like one of the main tenets of Jesus is that like, there's only Hashem. It's, it almost seems like a I don't want to say, like, a futile, like, almost like a futile effort, because it's like, there is no
0: other. Zach raises one of the most important philosophical questions that could ever be raised, and that is, how does a creator create a creation and maintain the notion of unity at the same time? Surely, the creation either is a continuation continuation of the creator, and hence no creation has occurred, or alternately... He's separate from the Creator in which you've created duality in the world. How can you reconcile the notion of oneness with the notion of creation? How does it all go together? Zach stumbled upon one of the most basic fundamentals of the Kabbalistic literature which in its classic heading is known as Hat Hatzimtzum the secret of constriction which we'll have to Excellent. We'll talk about it later in the book, yeah. Yeah, we'll have to talk about it later in the book. We'll talk about that later. In the meantime, let's just uh, perhaps, perhaps dig a little bit underneath these words to see perhaps what the Ramchal is anticipating by presenting this as a first point in the chapter entitled, The Purpose of Creation. Um the end of the last chapter ch- chapter ended by the Ramchal ass- asserting that there are six things that we have to know about the Creator. They are His reality, the truth of His reality, His perfection, His imperative nature, meaning it has to be that He's here. He's completely independent and not dependent on any other thing in the world. He has no complex structure is absolutely simple and all is one is united now again to go into the philosophical notions and distinctions between all those criteria I'm by no means even remotely qualified so we'll just leave those as open ended but what comes out from the Ramchal's conclusion is that there is one thing we know about the Ibranish and that he is he is perfect and the way the Ramchal himself defines perfection is he lacks nothing now if you have a perfect being who lacks nothing so then the need for a creation is obviated it doesn't have to exist you don't need to create it know, generally when we do things it's because we need to do those things I don't drink if I'm not hungry let me say that again I don't drink if I'm not thirsty that makes more sense I don't eat if I'm not hungry I don't hurl abuse at Shlomo unless he's upset me Oh, that's actually not true. <laughs> Take that one back. Um, find someone else. In fact, oh, the truth is I just... Oh. Um, <laughs> in other words, generally... So great having you here. Thank you. Generally, when you do something, it's because you need to do it. If you don't need to do it, you don't do it. So therefore, why did the Rebunish bother make creation? If you say it's because he needed it, so then you fall into the trap that he's not perfect. He lacked something. He lacked the creation. If you say, he didn't need us, then why didn't he do it? So this is a a mystery that the Ramchal unravels in the first line of his uh, second chapter, and that is, he didn't need it, and he did it. You can have something that you don't need, it's called altruism. There's no personal gain involved whatsoever, it's purely done for the other. The nature of creation, as we understand it, and there's very little that we can understand, is it was the ultimate altruistic act. There's many ways of saying this. One of the ways of saying it is, Hashem Elokim, Hashem, which is the name of Chesed, that was, okay, we'll get into that. In other words, the fundamental, what we call midah, character trait of Hashem is Chesed. Chesed means doing good for another with absolutely no selfish interest whatsoever. The pure, pure intent, unadulterated, is to give good to another. And the first fundamental that we have to understand about the motivation of the Creator to the extent that we can understand, which is very limited, is that the pure motivation behind the creation and the desire to realize their goal was that the Rabbeinu al olam could take of his good and give it to another which is the ultimate altruistic act he'd be able to give someone else <coughs> true goodness true goodness Hine says Ramchal Hatachlis Bebriah the purpose of creation was for Hashem to give of His good to another. The Ramchal goes on and says, And behold, you have to see, Hashem alone is absolute perfection. It's impossible that He has any lacking. Vein shleimus acher kemoihu klal, and there's no perfection but him, and there's no perfection like him at all. Ve'nimta, and therefore it results she'kol shleimus she'edume. Any perfection that we can conceive of, chutz mishleimus, is barshmoy. Other than Hashem's perfection, wholeness, hina enenu shleimus amiti, can't be called true perfection. Ela yikare shleimus, it can only be described as shleimus completion be be'erich. Relative, something which is less complete than it. But absolute perfection can only be Hashem. Okay, unfortunately, we have run out of time, so we'll conclude today's teachings right here and look forward to not tomorrow, perhaps not even Thursday, because uh, I may have other engagements and at least we will reconvene on